as you know, we finished up a series a while ago in the Old Testament, and we're working now into the New Testament, and we're particularly working on the book of 1 Corinthians. And so what we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to be doing sort of an introduction to 1 Corinthians. And I know people say, oh, introduction, I mean, da-da-da. Some of you, like, I've read that a hundred times, I know it all, I'll sleep. No, don't sleep, okay? What we want to do is really we're going to have a message that's kind of like two parts. The first part is trying to understand what is the world and what was the life like in the time of the Apostle Paul. And the second part is just dealing with a very short, tiny passage at the beginning of the book. If we are with us, and you haven't been with us in this one, but we're going to be doing a new series with this. And it comes up saying, I will worship, which is not the right place. So um, hopefully we'll move up towards that and see if we get there. Uh, here we are. It's a little strange name to start the series called Swimming in Sodom, which is not something that sounds particularly attractive, but it fits really well with the culture that the Apostle Paul was living in. And, you know, if you look at our culture today and how things are going, it ain't that different. In fact, one of the things we're going to see is that there's a lot of connections from 2,000 years ago in the time of the Apostle Paul to what is happening now. And so we're going to be doing this, making sure we spend a little bit of time understanding what's going on and to make sure that we have an understanding of what was the world like, what was the culture, what impacted their life. And so we are doing a two-part sermon. And I want to start, which sounds like a strange thing, but I have a question for you. Okay, we'll see how many of you get it. Here's the question. What do you think of the criminal justice system in Lithuania? Laurie, you think you've got it? No. Does anybody know anything about the criminal justice system in Lithuania? Michael does, right? No. Okay, here's the thing. I don't know it either. No, the point is this. I don't know anything about it. If you said, what do I know about the justice system in Lithuania? I say, only thing I know, it's one of those Baltic states, okay? The other thing I know is the Russians controlled it for a long time. When you get beyond that, I don't know anything about it. In other words, you could, somebody could ask a question. You say, well, that's ridiculous. I wouldn't know unless I had studied it or I'd been there or I had friends that I did. Okay, well, that's giving you a context to say, oh, I do know something about the system and the criminal justice system. In other words, the point of it is this. It's important and critical for us to be asking the question, what is the context what is the world that we are in? We can talk to people in Lithuania. What is their world like? But now, what was it like for the Apostle Paul? What was the world like when he had this amazing ministry that we're going to be talking about that's written in the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians? And so that's what we want to do this morning. The first thing is try to get the idea of what do we know about their world and what the Apostle Paul was doing. The second part is very short, but just dealing with the question of look at how Paul starts this letter and what's so significant about it. So if you want to, you can turn in your Bible to 1 Corinthians, but it can be a little bit of time before we get to the actual passage. So what is the context? We want to talk about the Apostle Paul and the fact that he was involved there at the city of Corinth, okay? And so I want to do it just kind of real quick and be running through a couple slides, reminding us what was his world like when he was there that impacts our understanding of 1 Corinthians, if you would. So we need to know what Paul's world was like. So first of all, the city of Corinth, where the Apostle Paul ministered so much, was a very, very ancient city. Many of us in high school had to read the Iliad, the Odyssey, those kind of things. Corinth was a big city even before the time of that, and that's going way back. So it was a major Greek city that went way back. 
and it was very, very popular. But later on, the Romans came in, and they fought the Romans, and they lost. So they fought them again in 146 BC. Again, they lost. They weren't doing too well on the thing. That's going on. But the point is, when that happened in 146 AD, the Romans said, forget it, man. We're going to keep this place desolate. You can't build. You can't do anything. And so it was a really very tragic thing for the people who lived there. And then finally, after a while, the Romans realized, you know, we're losing money big time because we can't have any commerce. And they lived, they, where they lived was a very, very important place. And so what happened is they realized, okay, we got to do something here. Let's rebuild. And so the Romans started rebuilding again, and commerce started flourishing. And what's interesting there is when you see this happen, things start going. Things are being built. Things are being repaired. And people are making money. And times are good. Now, we have probably some of us here in the, our time, lifetime, have had some good times and some really bad times. Well, this was a really good time. And the reason was location, location, location. All right? The map that you're seeing here is not a great one, but if you notice what we have, let me make sure I get this right over here, is you're looking at a section of southern Greece. And if you look right here, if you can see on the clicker there, maybe it would be better off to try it here. If you look right here, there's this little tiny section. It's only four miles long. It's an, it, and what it is, this little tiny thing right here is only four and a half miles. But what is so important about it is a lot of people that are traveling east and west, they're coming up through here. They cross through this little isthmus right through here, and they go on to other parts in Greece and to Turkey and that. And so a lot of traffic is going right through here. So not only that, but the Romans were smart. They started saying, you know, it's really dangerous. We keep going around all these areas. So many boats are thinking, what can we do? And somebody said, I got an idea. All these boats that are coming here, bring them here. That little isthmus there is only three miles across. Let's see if we could drag the boats from there to here, and we got a shortcut. And that's exactly what they did. They put rollers on it, and they took these huge ships, and they drug them right across the place, and then put them back in the water. I mean, we think we're, you know, they we're so smart. They were pretty smart themselves. And so what happened is you found out here is a place where there's a lot of good things going on. Now, notice this. Commerce flourishes, but the bad thing is where there's money, you're going to have vice, and there was a lot of it. It was a place where it was Sin City. That's where the idea here of coming and talking about our thing here. It's like the Las Vegas, if you can think, if you like Las Vegas, forgive me, but it's like the Las Vegas of ancient Greece. And it was smutty. And it was bad. And so what you had is Paul is going to be ministering in a city that is really, really bad. In fact, uh, they don't know who did this, but somebody turned the word Corinth into Corinthiazo. It's a verb saying this is like sexual yuckiness, like really bad stuff. It's like they even made their own term for it to describe just how terrible this city was. This is the world that Paul is going to have to work in. This is the world that we are going to be already working in, and it's only going to get worse unless the Lord returns or there's some major revival. But it's important to see that Paul is living and working in a culture that is very, very corrupt. And a lot of it reminds us of a lot of what's going on in our culture right now. Real quick, just a reminder, what were the religious situation? Aphrodite, by far, was the major one. All kinds of statues of her were all over the place. Um, lots of other ones, Greek and Roman gods that were there. 
It was a very, very pagan kind of world. A lot of mystery religions that were from the East were there. And so you had all these weird people. And because you had all these kind of things, people crossing the areas, areas they hear, people are picking up these different religions. And so it's kind of a cacophony of religions taking place for the Apostle Paul at this time. There was at least one synagogue. They know that because when they started working in Corinth and they dug under, there was a big place, piece, piece of rock and in it it talked about the synagogue there in Corinth. There may have been more, but the Jews were a small minority. And so what happens is we want to spend just a couple minutes and think about this. What do we know? What do we remember about now the Apostle Paul? We've done a little bit about what his world was like, but let's talk about a little bit back him. Now, I know some of you have read this stuff a hundred times, but just a reminder about the Apostle Paul. His name was Saul. Right around this time when he was coming to Corinth is about when he changed his name from Saul to Paul. It sounds a little more Roman. But anyways, he was a very well-trained guy. Remember, we studied under Gamaliel. He was smart. He knew the scriptures. He was well-respected. We know for a fact that he recognized what was going on, that many of his Jewish friends were coming to faith in Jesus as Messiah, and he was angry. Not just angry, but he was willing to go after the Christians and imprison them. If you remember that, he, went, he was present at the stoning of Stephen. He was there holding the coats when they killed him. And we read about it, and Saul, it says, Saul agreed to, um, agreed to putting him, Stephen, to death. In other words, they killed him. They killed Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And Paul, now later Saul, was all for it. Good, kill him. That's what they deserve. And, of course, most of us are familiar with the story. A strange thing happened on the way to Damascus, and Paul would never be the same. The Lord Jesus came to him, and he came to understand what was happening. He was blinded for three days, and Ananias came and told him about him, and he was healed, and his life had changed forever. The guy who was the persecutor becomes the one being persecuted. And so that's a little bit, just a minute about him. Because we understand Paul went on, had an amazing ministry. He went to one of the first missionary journeys. They went from Antioch to Cyprus, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, all these cities, what would be today Turkey. And then they came back to Antioch. Antioch was probably the major Christian place in terms of sending out uh, the gospel. And so he had a first one. Then there was a second missionary journey, about 50 AD, where he had, from Antioch, he had that vision of someone calling out, please come here to Europe. And so what happened? He came over, and it was the beginning of the Christianity coming into Europe. And we know some of those famous things. You have Paul goes to Lystra. Remember in Philippi, you have that whole thing that goes on where um, uh, in Philippi, the, 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 uh, they're in prison, and the prison thing opens up. And he goes to Athens where he meets with all these brilliant people there in Greece and Athens. And then he gets to Corinth. And again, Corinth is the place where God has sent him, but things are tough. It is a difficult place. But there are some great things that happen. They meet a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. They had been kicked out of Rome because they were Jewish. And they found Paul, or Paul found them, and there they had two partners. To make it even better, Silas and Timothy that he left behind, they caught up with him. And so now he's got a group of guys and women who are now serving the Lord and preaching the gospel of what Christ has done. And so we know what happens from there. Paul starts preaching in a synagogue. And at first, 
They loved him. This guy knew the scriptures, and he's smart, and he speaks well, and things really doing well. And then he starts saying, and there is a Messiah, and he has come, and his name is Jesus. And a lot of people said, uh-uh, we ain't buying it. And they kick him out of the synagogue. So Paul, and I guess they didn't like this very much, he taught from the house right next door to the synagogue. Okay, you threw me out, but we're renting a house next door, and we're going to be talking about Jesus being Messiah while you're telling them it ain't true. So you can see why he got in trouble a lot of times, and he certainly did. And so he continued in that work. And what's interesting to see is it said God really worked with it. You can see a passage going in from the book of Acts. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, they believed, they were baptized. Then the Lord said to Paul, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent. Why? Because I am with you. Notice he was in a hard place, a tough place to minister. The Lord said, I'll be with you. And we read about a couple passages down. And he, that is Paul, stayed there a year and a half teaching the word of God about it. Wouldn't that be called, that need to have a pastor, the apostle Paul, spending a year and a half preaching the Old Testament and teaching it? That would be so neat. I wonder if he would do it again maybe when we're in heaven. I don't know. At that point, it won't really matter. We'll be with the Lord. But the point is, he spent a long time there. That's uncommon for him to be staying that long in one place. But he spent a full year and a half. And so what happened from that point on, he journeyed to Ephesus, not that far away, by boat. And when he got there, he wrote a couple different letters, of which we'll talk about, First Thessalonians and others. But there he stayed for a while, and he wrote some letters, and then he went back, and he traveled some more. Now what happens here when we come to this, the Apostle Paul in Corinth, he realized that that time in Corinth was an important time, because it was an incredible place. He knew it was going to be a challenge. He knew that this was Sin City. He knew that the Jewish leadership was opposed to him. He knew that many of the Romans were opposed to him. He knew it was going to be hard, but he worked for a year and a half. But he understood, even though this is a hard place to work, and he realized that this is not an easy work, he realized this is one of the great opportunities for the gospel. Because Corinth was that crossroads where people are coming from east to west, the north to south, and you have these people coming. When the gospel starts spreading, it's going to start spreading through these group of people, and it did. And people came to faith in Christ. They stayed there, maybe worked for a year or two, and then they went out and started telling their friends and neighbors, and like a, a, a work just started going. And people were coming to faith in Christ. Jewish people believing Jesus was their Messiah. And so he realized this was a terrific opportunity for the gospel. He knew it was going to be hard. It was hard. But God used them in a significant way. That's the first part. Second part, short, real short. Stay with me, okay? Just looking real quick at the very first lines of 1 Corinthians. If you have your Bible, you can open up. Yours may be slightly different. I'm using the Holman Christian Standard. But notice this, if you would. Paul goes away. And he gets a letter, and the letter is not good. He gets the letter, and the letter finds out that this church where he spent a year and a half is full of strife, struggle, sin, splits, and suffering. And by the way, most of us here have had some kind of experience, or many of us have had, we have churches that struggled, split, strife, struggle. But it's hard to believe. You know, sometimes when we look at these Old Testament and New Testament people, we oftentimes call them saints. Man, they had a man, they had a struggle in their world. 
They had struggles with this church, just like we have struggles in churches today. But Paul gets this bad news of saying, you know what? You know that church where you poured your life in? It's a mess. And you better do something because things are really bad. And Paul sits down and he says, I'm writing a letter. And here's the dilemma that he's got. His dilemma is, how should I write this very talented, very wealthy, very gifted, but very troubled congregation here in Corinth? In other words, what do I do? How do I approach them? Do I kind of soft pedal it? Sorry to hear there's some struggles, but I hope you're doing okay. Or does he use the hammer? What in the world happened to you crazy people while I was gone? He's got to decide what, you know, he's going to, they're going to read this letter. And he wants, how will they respond to this? How should I be trying to help them in the struggle? And what should I do? And so this is where our passage comes in. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1, verse 13. We're just going to read that passage very short and then just take it apart a little bit. Paul writes this way. Paul, by the way, that's a nice way the way he did it. They told you from the very beginning who the person is who wrote it. Okay? Paul called as the apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will and our brother Sosthenes to God's church in Christ Jesus and called the saints with those who call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, theirs and ours. And one more verse, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the whole passage we're going to look at. Three verses. People say, three verses on an, just a thing that's saying, hi, here I am. Yeah, because it's significant that in those little three verses, Paul makes some very important things that not only did they had, to, they had to understand, but we need to understand. So going back to this passage, Paul says, Paul called as apostle of Christ Jesus. Now notice that phrase where it says called as an apostle. The apostle Paul, remember, was not part of the original 12. And because of that, the Apostle Paul was often, we'll see it more in 2 Corinthians, of people saying, he ain't a real apostle. He wasn't part of the 12. Who is he to think that he's an apostle? And Paul regularly had to say, no, wait, I am apostle. You're right. I wasn't part of the 12. I never met Jesus. I never chucked his hand. I never had dinner with him. I wasn't there at the time when that happened. But he said, I am an apostle. I'm not part of the 12 apostles, but I am an apostle because I have been chosen by God to do the work of the apostle, to take the good news of Christ to the world. And so he had some people that kind of gave him grief because of the fact that he wasn't part of the original 12. But he said, Paul called as an apostle of Christ Jesus, and notice this phrase, by God's will. In other words, God is the one who's called us into this. And he's saying, I'm doing this because God has brought me to this Rome of doing this. By, by God's will and by our brother Sothenes. We know almost nothing about this guy named Sothenes. It's interesting, though, there is a person that was in the same time there in Corinth who was not a Christian at that time who was named Sothenes, and he had a pretty high position in the city. And it could be that he became a Christian, and he's now um, you know, writing this with Paul, with, with Paul being with him. It could be. We don't know. But notice verse 2. And God's church in Christ Jesus. Notice that phrase, because this is very important. Paul's talking about the fact that he's hearing that the church in Corinth is a wreck. People are saying, I'm with Paul. I'm with Apollos. Well, I'm with Jesus. Other people are going, and Paul said, come on. He said, to God's church in Christ Jesus. He's reminding us something that's very important. 
This is not our church. It's God's church, not ours. Well, we can say, well, we don't even have a church. Well, we have a building that we're using that they're grateful for its kind to allow us to be renting here from. But the point of it is, it's saying, it doesn't matter. I don't care if you've got the biggest church in town. It isn't your church. It's still Christ's church. It doesn't matter whether it's a small congregation or a megath one. The point is, if you don't recognize that the church is God's church and not ours, we're in trouble. Because once we start talking about my church, there's that sense of ownership. It's that idea. And of course, you hear people say this. Well, we're having the deacons meeting, and since my grandfather gave all the money for the thing, I'm telling you we're going to do... You don't think that doesn't happen? It happens all the time. Well, I, my grandmother has been you know, preaching in the choir and singing in the choir, and she's decided that we're going to have red hymn nooks. Oh, no, but no. It goes on and on. And what Paul is trying to do from the very beginning is saying, do you understand that wherever you're at, it doesn't matter about location. It doesn't matter about what building you're in. Most of them were, were little house churches. But he's saying, you need to recognize that the church the ecclesia, that's God's church. And you don't mess with God's church. He said to God's church in Christ Jesus and called as saints. And what's kind of, what's kind of strange here, he's speaking to the congregation who are not acting like saints. They're, taking, they're acting more like sinners. And so Paul is gracious in the way that he's dealing with this. He could have brought the hammer down. Instead, he says, I'm calling to you you people that have got all these issues, you're called as saints with those who call on the name of Jesus Christ. And what's interesting is the fact that the apostle Paul is still willing to see them as men and women loved by God, chosen by God. In fact, if you look at that little three-word sentence, the word called appears three times. Paul called as an apostle by God's will to God's church in Christ who's called as saints with those who call on the name of Jesus Christ. saying, you are the chosen. You're the one that God in his free church uh, has decided to, that you are the ones that are being brought into relationship with him. Even though you are a mess and your church is a mess, it's still God's church and God is going to continue to do his work. And so the apostle Paul keeps saying, I'm going to keep on going here. Keep on talking about what God is doing. And so what we see, he says to them, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What's interesting here is that this word grace, what Paul is using here, is interesting. There's a Greek word karain that is often used with the idea of greeting. Karain, greeting, good to see you. How you doing? How's your mother? How's your grandmother? But there's another word, charis. That's the one that, the Korean is the normal one that they would use when you're greeting somebody in a letter or when you're speaking to him. What's interesting here, the Apostle Paul does not use the word Korean, greeting. Instead, he uses the word grace. Because grace is a term among Christians which recognizes who God is and who we are in him and the fact that all that we have that is significant, all that is important is by God's grace. And it's interesting because the commentators make the point, he could have said Karain, like everybody else does. Instead, he uses Karis, which is not Kara's name, but close, okay? Karis, it's grace. And how important that was, that they would understand that all that they have and all that's significant 
is by God's grace. J. Gresham Machen was at Princeton Seminary for many, many years, and he made an interesting statement about the word grace. He said, the very center and core of the whole Bible is the doctrine of the grace of God. That's quite a statement. That is quite a statement to say the most important thing, the very center and core of the whole Bible is the doctrine of the grace of God. But I'm so grateful that he wrote that because the more we understand it, it's reminding us again, we are saved not by our merits, but by what Christ has done for us. And so here in the opening of this book, 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul speaks to this group that is so torn to get torn apart, so many struggles and problems. He still speaks to them about grace, the grace that God gives to us. I couldn't find who this came from, but somebody had written it down, saying a shorthand for grace is mercy, not merit. I like that. It's about mercy, not about merit. And, of course, that's so critical because we know in the Middle Ages, particularly what was going on, Martin Luther was a good Catholic priest. He was following the Lord. He was reading the scripture. And the more he started studying it, the more he was concerned about the church that he loved. And as he started studying that, he started realizing, you know, something's not right here. Because what he understand is that things had changed over the centuries. And, you know, people like St. Augustine and Cyprian and all these amazing church fathers and stuff, he was reading them. And he was reading them. And a lot of this now, the stuff is coming in and there were people who were understanding it better. And he realized that saying, wait a minute, it sounds like, you know, if we're a good person and we do more good things, we start getting merits. And there are like saints that are good and they've got some good merits and they're probably going to go to heaven. But then there's like these super saints who have done and they've done so many good things that they've merited enough not only for themselves to be accepted by God, but the fact those extra merits can be used by someone else. And of course, this is where Martin Luther just about lost it when he found out saying, well, you know, we got a bunch of extra things from Saint so-and-so, and so we're going to use those, and we can use those for uh, what we can do. You know, maybe you want to go have a night in the town and not be, have that put against you. You give us, you know, $25, and you can have a night in the town with the little ladies and stuff like that, but we'll, for, for the right price, you can get an indulgence and, and, uh, to help make sure that you're okay. And Luther is like, no, this is not what the church has been about. Historically, it was never like this. Why are we allowing this to happen? And so for Luther, he made it very clear. He said, we are not justified by our merits, but by the mercy of God. Now, again, he was not the only person saying this. this is, there was a huge things happening in the 16th, 15th, 17th century of things were changing so much. And there were many people like Luther, like Zwingli, Moldinger, all these people who are now reading the scriptures clearly, not just their, their lectionary, but they're reading the scripture and saying, where did this come from? How, how did we even allow this to happen? Why would they go for these indulgences? And they're saying, listen, we need to clean up the church. You remember during the same time, there was a time where they had three different popes at the same time all battling with each other to get the thing. And so you had this huge movement of people saying, we need to do something with the church that we love. And Zwingli was one of them and others, but Luther was the most famous because he's one that said, it is not about our merits, it's about God's mercy. That little statement, not about our merits, but God's mercy, in many ways changed the world. 
because he started reading the scriptures with others. And he had all the other people that were with him that could read. They were reading in Greek, and they were reading the ancient Hebrew. And they're going, why did we get off track on this? What's such a wonderful thing what God has done for us? And so you see what's happening here. And they're saying, listen, it's about mercy. And so what you see is it makes it very clear. It's saying when people started understanding it, it's saying we all want to feel like, well, I got to heaven because I was a pretty good guy. You know, I wasn't that good, but I was probably good enough. It's like, wait a minute. It's not my 50%. Well, I did 50% of it. I'll let God do his 50%. The point is there's no 50%. It's no 5%. There's no 1%. It's 100% God's mercy. You could never earn what Christ is willing to give you freely. That is an understanding that transformed the world, the Christian world, where people would say, you know, you're right. We can't earn what God is so willing to give us when we are willing to come to him by faith and say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner, and I blew it, and I could never do anything to be good enough. But you, in your mercy, have given me grace, and I want that grace, Lord Jesus, and I'm coming to you. It's not about what percent. It's about recognizing all of God. That's why passages like this in Ephesians are important. Here the apostle Paul's writing. It says this. This is in Ephesians. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Obviously, they're still alive, but it's talking spiritually. You're dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you previously walked. And then jumping down to a couple of verses, he goes on to say, For by grace you are saved through faith. This is not from yourself. In other words, not your 10%, your 50%, your 5%. It's all of grace. Not from yourself. Notice this. Salvation is God's gift, not from works. You could never work hard enough if you worked hard every day of your life to get what God is so willing to give you, give you totally free. He said it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one could boast. And when we come to that point where we realize, I have no resume. I have nothing where I can say, Jesus, aren't I just a wonderful person? No. You're a sinner like everyone else. Well, how can I find salvation? You can find it by recognizing the fact because you have sinned that God has sent his son, the Lord Jesus, to take our sin, our guilt upon himself, that we might be able to have a life with him forever. And he keeps coming back to that same phrase. It's not about merit. It's about mercy. And that's what grace is all about. For by grace you're saved through faith. You know, it reminds us of a parable very close to the time when Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. It's the parable of the unforgiving slave. You remember the guy that owed all these gazillions of dollars? And he says, I can't pay it. Would you forgive me? And the, guy says, the king says, yeah, you know what? You're forgiven. And then the guy who had just been forgiven all the gazillion dollars, he comes out and finds the guy that owns five bucks. And he says, hey, give me the money or I'm going to put you in prison. It's like saying, and the king says, what? I showed mercy to you, but you won't show mercy to me. I, I you know, took gazillions of dollars. I took it away. But you didn't have to pay for it. And yet you do this now to me. It comes back to that idea of saying, you know what? It's not about merit. It's about mercy. And it's a reminder of self that we who have experienced charis, grace, we are the ones who have experienced that we come to the cross realizing we have no merits that we need to bring. 
We recognize that we are people who have sinned against God, and yet we have life in Christ, not because what we have done, but what Christ has done for us. And we have freedom in Christ, knowing that our sins are forgiven. They can never be taken away from us, and we'll be with him forever in the place that God has prepared for us. Our Father, we pray that you'd help us now as we continue as we started this series, that you would remind us again that it is about mercy, about charis. It's not about works. It's not about merit. So, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who's come to the point in their life where they recognize that they, too, have sinned, where they, too, have failed like we have, but who recognize that Christ has given us new life, forgiveness, that we might be with him for, be with Christ forever. Father, we pray that you would encourage them to come talk with me, talk with someone else, that they can understand clearly of the fact that it's not about merit, but it's all about mercy. Lord, be with us, we pray, as we continue in our service. Pray that it would be honoring to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.